maybe on a personal story of your own, or maybe the story of someone that you love, someone that you care for, someone that you're in, that have a, you're in family or relationship with, and you found yourself in a situation where you truly are desperate for God. And this morning, we are going to unpack the central idea that this video introduces this morning. And to do that, I would love if you have a copy of God's Word to us in some form that you look in Psalm 34, which is where we're going to spend some of our time together this morning. But we are past the halfway point now of a series that we are calling Four G's You Can Change. We are basically looking at four foundational truths about who God is. And when I say foundational, I don't just mean foundational in that it's pretty good content, but I mean critically foundational. For me, I find myself that as I believe these truths about God, that I speak this message to my heart daily. I need to constantly be reminded about who God is. And so as we look into this third part of this series of, I want to ask you a couple of contemplative questions that help us unpack this truth. And that is the truth that God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. Let me ask you a couple of questions this morning. Do you find yourself always wanting more? Do you find yourself in life always wanting more? You may often say to yourself, if, if only I had fill in the blank, I would be satisfied. If only I could have that, I'd have all that I needed. You may ask yourself, if, I only, if only blank would happen, I'd have all that I need. If this would just happen, I'd be completely satisfied. If I only made X amount of money, then I could be truly resting in my spirit. If I just made this X amount of money, that's all I need. I just need to make just a little more and everything will be satisfied and I will find satisfaction. But yet what we find is with each thing gained, we eventually find ourselves back wanting more. We find ourselves unsatisfied. We find ourselves, once again, incomplete. Do you find yourself complaining more than you find yourself thanking God? If we ask those who knew you the most, would they say that you are generally a grateful person? Are you a complainer? Are you always grumbling because you kind of feel slighted? You You don't have everything. You deserve more things. Now think about, go out to eat at one of your favorite restaurants and you're sitting at the table with someone and you order the same thing, you and the other person. Exact same thing. And when they bring the plates out, your steak's a little smaller than theirs. You're like, well, why, why do I deserve the smaller steak? Or have you ever been at a wedding where you go through the reception line where they're cutting the cake and you get to like scrub piece that's like the end of the thing? You're like, man, well, they got the big piece. Why do I get the little piece? I deserve more. I'm slighted. You know, do you find yourself jealous about what other people have? 
You look at possessions and you look at things of this world that people have and you ask yourself, why don't I have that? Why can't I have those things? Do you find yourself constantly discouraged by a lack of time or a lack of money? Do you feel generally just entitled? But I want you to read with me this morning in Psalm chapter 34. I want us to read these three verses beginning with verse 8 that I think are critical for our conversation this morning. Psalm 34 verses 8 through 10 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions, they suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you see the progression that is taking place here as we have unpacked these truths about who God is? You know, we talked the first week about God being great and so we don't have to be in control. We talked last week about the fact that God is glorious. And so because God is glorious, I do not have to fear other people. And we talked about how that a holy fear of God, feeling the weightiness of him, feeling the weightiness of his glory, the heaviness of who he is, leads us to abandon the fear of man. Because who are we to fear other people compared to God? who he calls us to fear. And now we see his holy fear. And now we see the psalmist who is writing that the one who had tasted that the Lord is good, who had sought refuge in his goodness, who had truly learned to fear God with this holy fear that we talked about last week to feel the weight of his glory, he is the one that has no lack. So do you see that often we look at the source of things in the things themselves And scriptures teach us he that has found a holy, reverent fear of God who sees his glory and feels his weight, he is the one that has no lack. It mentions nothing about things. It mentions nothing about anything that you receive. This isn't the prosperity gospel where where, where, where God is, Jesus is Santa, where he just kind of gives us exactly what we need. We say, God, I want this stuff and I'm being good and I deserve these things. This isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who has a real fear of the power of God, who sees his majesty but feels his intimacy as a father saying, I have no lack because of Jesus. Jesus gives us exactly what we need. He gives us our manna for today. We've talked about in our reading plan with the Israelites. He gave them the exact thing they needed for that day. And he said, you can store up all you want, but it's going to ruin. I'm going to give you exactly what you need for this day. You're going to trust me that if you fear me and you rest in me, you will have no lack. This is the truth. That when we truly feel the weight of God's glory, we begin to see his goodness. Now, I want us to see three things about the goodness of God before we really get into some of the nuts and bolts of what this means for our life and how we apply this to life. But I want us to see three things about the goodness of God. I want to read some scriptures, and we're not going to have time for you to flip through all of these. So just write them down, go back, check them out. First thing, God doesn't just meet the standard of good, but he is the standard of good. Okay? God does not just meet the standard of good, 
but he is the standard of good. Hear these scriptures. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 107.1 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love, it endures forever. Once we hear that once again, Psalm 135 verses one through four says, Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. I love that. Sing to the Lord, sing to his name, for it's pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and Israel as his own possession. So God is not just does not just meet the standard of good, but he is the standard of good. I love to drink coffee. Love it. I drink it all the time, all day long, you know, constantly. It's horrible probably, but I love it. And so if you have, you know, all these lots, you have all these different lots of coffees that you can choose from, and I have become very much a coffee snob. I mean, I just... I have to drink some certain types of coffee we have at, at my office. And, but ultimately, I, you know, I drink Starbucks. I like Starbucks. I drink Jittery Joe's at T-Bones. I like it. And he's not in here, so I can brag on him. But for me, the, 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 the standard of coffee is Grin Coffee by Tommy Teeple in our church. If you never tried it, you're missing a lot in life. That's become the standard of good coffee with me. Carmen can testify I went, she sent me to the store the other day to buy coffee, and she said, get this kind. It's like, you like that kind? She's like, well, I mean, it's not Tommy's, but it's good. It's the next best thing. And so for me, I, they have a, he has a blend called Hootie Hoo. It is my favorite. He roasts a fresh ground cup, and we hear it brewing in the morning. It gives me, you know, I'm not a morning person, so it kind of gets me out of bed, and it's a personal favorite blend of mine, but it doesn't meet, just meet the standard of good coffee for me, but to me, it is the coffee by which I measure all other coffees as good. So, you know, on a scale of one to hootie hoo, Folgers would be like sub-zero, okay? I know there may be some Folgers drinkers. So you see my standard and my range here. There is coffee, and then there is the standard of good coffee for me. And when we think about that with God... We consider that God doesn't just meet a standard, but he is the standard by which we measure all other things as being good or not good. He is that standard. And we must be careful that we don't define God by the worldly standard of good because God's ways are higher. They're often beyond our understanding and so we say, well, God, well, you don't seem like you're acting very good here. This does not seem like what a good God would do. But we must remind ourselves that God is perfect, he is sovereign, and he is the standard of good. But there's a second thing about God's goodness that we want us to consider as we walk through some stories coming up. And that's that not only is God the standard of good, God is the source of all things good. He's the standard of good, he is the source of of all things good. Listen to James 1.17. It says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shadow due to change. 
Whatever you receive from God that is a blessing, your family, your job, your happiness, your relationships, money, everything that we receive is a direct blessing from God. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. He is the source of all things good. You know, I think about this and I think about our jobs. You, don't, you didn't earn your job. You may have thought you did. You didn't earn your job. You were gifted that job because it is a good thing. It comes from God. He's the source of all things good. You were gifted that job to steward it well. It is not your possession. You did not earn it. God gifted it to you. I look around the room this morning at all the married couples in here today. Guys, we did not earn our wives. We married way over our heads, okay? That's right. We married way over our heads. It's a gift from God. Our children, I look around the room at the kids. Our children are a blessing from God. Scriptures teach us that. Our children are a blessing from the Lord. And so, as we consider that aspect of it, that that all good things come from God, and we consider our children a blessing from the Lord, look in Matthew chapter 7 with me. Flip over to Matthew chapter 7. Let's read about where we see how we consider that we often are the bearer of good things, that we are the provider of good things, but read how the Father looks at us as his children. Matthew 7, beginning with verse 7. It says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So listen to this part. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you're going to give him a serpent. If you then, he's, the questions are open. It obviously, you don't give your kid a stone or a serpent in place of food or, or a fish. He goes on to say, then, if you then, us, who are evil on our own, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is the standard of good, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So do you see the contradiction here? We, evil by birth and choice, we care for our children, we provide for our children, we desire to give them good things. So because of us being evil and and not being the standard of good, God cares for his children so much better. He is the source of all good things because he is the standard of good. So we need to recognize as we taste and see that the Lord is good, that he is the standard He is the source of all things good. And finally, we must realize that God always, always, always acts out of his goodness. He's the standard of good, source of all good things, and he always acts out of his goodness. Psalm 119 verse 68 teaches us that God is good and he does good. As we look throughout the story, think to yourself, where do you see God acting out of his goodness. We see it all throughout the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, and we see him acting out of his goodness at the end when he returns. But you look at the, right off the bat at the creation story. Think about the creation story. In Genesis 1, in verse 31, it says that God saw everything that he had made. He had created, and now we're getting to the end. He had created, and he creates 
man, and he, then he looks at everything that he, be, he had made, and he said, behold, it was very good. He says, my creation was good. God placed man and woman in the garden. He gave them dominion over all things. He gave life to them. He gave them sustenance. He provided for them. It was perfection. Everything was in rhythm. He tells them to enjoy all things except one thing. One thing. I've put you in bliss, and you can enjoy all of it. Be fruitful and multiply the earth, but stay away from this one fruit. He created things good. And so when we see the original sin creep in, what we're actually seeing is an accusation against God that he was withholding something good from them. Because he said, look, I've created all things and it is good. Stay away from this tree. Everything else enjoy. It is good for me. But then we see that Adam and Eve are deceived. Did God really say not to eat of that fruit? He's withholding something good from you. And they taste. And from their own, the relationship between God and man is fractured. And God has since then been restoring a people back to him. Think about the illustration of Joseph. As, as Joseph and his, his, is sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up a ruler in the kingdom. And his brothers come back because of a famine, and they need food. And they find themselves before Joseph. And what does Joseph do? He says, he eventually, through a series of events, he sends for the younger brother and he sends for the father. And eventually he tells, he falls on his oldest brother and he, and he begins to weep and he tells him, it's me, it's Joseph. The one that you sold into slavery, you contemplated killing and you sold into slavery, it's me, Joseph. And they were upset and fearful and afraid because he was a powerful man. But what does Joseph says? He say he says in the midst of my circumstances, even though it appeared bleak, he says, "Do not worry. What man intended for evil, God intended for good, because He always acts out of His goodness, even in a certain situation like Joseph." And yet we know that all good things come from Him, but yet we so often think to ourselves when things don't go as we desire that God. You aren't giving me blank. So I don't know that you're a good God. If you were a good God who was the standard of good, who, who was the source of all things good, and who always acted good, you would give me this. And because you're not, you're withholding goodness from me. But yet we know that God, the scriptures teach us, he is good and he always does good. So what happens then when you and I begin to believe that God is not the standard of good. We believe the lie that God does not always act out of his goodness. And we begin to believe that he truly does not satisfy us. I think we see this in the, in the, in the story from the beginning. What happens to Adam and Eve? They eat of the fruit. They believe the lie. They find themselves now naked and ashamed and sinful to the point that they hide before God. All God created them to do was to enjoy what he had created for them. And not only did he create and then back away, but God wanted to walk with them in the coolness of the day, 
to fellowship with his creation. And he comes to them and says, What's, you know, where are you? He comes pursuing them. But yet they had bought into the lie that God was not enough and he did not satisfy. And they brought into the one thing that they were told not to do. So God is good. God is the standard of good. He is the source of all things good and he always acts out of his goodness. We say, what about the wrath and justice of God? How is that a good God acting out of his goodness? What is an attribute of God being just? What do we think about when we say God is a good God? Does a, would a good God be unjust? Unjust? Absolutely not. A good God acting out of his goodness is going to be a God who is just, who is fair, who is consistent, who is steady, who is righteous, who does things by the way that he said he would. He keeps his promises. This is a good God. So even in the midst of his wrath and justice towards us, we see that he is acting out of his goodness. But there's a problem. Because the truth in us is often we don't believe that God is supremely good. Well, yes, I do. Well, I don't know. Let's unpack this a bit before we just blatantly say, yeah, God's good. He's all I need. And we often find ourselves beginning to look elsewhere for satisfaction. I want you to see this laid out in the Old Testament, played out in the New Testament. If you will, look with me in Jeremiah chapter 2. As we, you and I, recognize that there's a standard of good and it is God, and that he is the only one that can satisfy. We sang about that. It's all about Jesus. That's all that matters. He's the only one that can satisfy. But yet you and I don't always believe that. And we look elsewhere for satisfaction. We attempt to fill the void in our life with stuff. We begin to fill the void and seek satisfaction in relationships. In our career. We're looking for something to satisfy our soul. Read what happened in Jeremiah chapter 2. As the prophet speaks towards the nation of Israel, who are God's chosen people, he says in verse 11 of chapter 2, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But he says, But my people, the Lord is saying, My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. It says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns, basically wells. But these wells were broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Hmm. People of Israel, though chosen by God, they traded the truth about God being a spring of living water, flowing fresh, spiritually quenching water. And they traded it for stale, stagnant, broken wells that can never satisfy or quench and that do not hold water. They cannot sustain you trace your way all through the Old and New Testament, we see example after example after example of people looking for satisfaction outside of God. 
but nothing satisfies like him. If we look for satisfaction or fulfillment, meaning, identity, anywhere other than Jesus, we will be left empty. Take it to the bank. You will eventually be left empty if you seek satisfaction in anyone other than Jesus. Yeah, but I got a great marriage. Yeah, I do too, but I fail my wife. There's often times that we fail in our relationships. It's not permanent satisfaction like we have in Jesus. I love one of my favorite stories in the New Testament that speaks to this. Remember that we just read about Jesus is the, is the well, the, the, the spring that is, is carrying living water, and they traded it for broken cisterns that could not even hold water. And we see this in John chapter 4 with the story of the, the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. <clears throat> Jesus turns a simple request for water to drink into an offer of eternal living water. He says that everyone who drinks of this water, the water from my well that I'm talking about, he says, he speaks of the Samaritan's woman's well first. He says, if anyone drinks of this water, the water from the well, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give, he will never be thirsty again. This woman is sitting here looking at her pot filled with water, and she's like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about here. You're, I mean, this well's deep, and you don't have anything to get the water. Well, what kind of water are you talking about here? And he goes on to say, the water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. He then asked this lady to go and to get her husband because not only is he exposing that she is looking for, for an a unquenchable source or a quenchable source of water, but yet she's finding unquenchable sources of water. He uses the symbolism of being at the well with the, the, the truth of what was going on in her life. And he says, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus went to the straight, to the heart of where she was seeking satisfaction by saying to her, you're right, you have had five husbands. And the one that you're with now is not your husband. You're on to number six. The Samaritan woman had been looking for satisfaction, for meaning, for fulfillment in marriage and in physical intimacy. And she was drinking from a broken cistern instead of from the spring of living water. Only God can provide living water where we will never thirst again. God is not only better than anything sin offers, but God is also, he's eternal. He is forever. So let's be honest, other things apart from God that we seek satisfaction in, many times, they do provide temporary satisfaction. For a season, they quench what we're longing for. There are moments of refreshments, or moments of pleasure, but eventually you will be thirsty again. You get a new outfit, you feel nice. You get a new car. For a while, it, that feels really good kind of distracted from the rest of the things in life. I got this new ride. We get a promotion. We buy a new house. We engage in physical pleasure and food. I mean, how many of us in this room would say that is a comfort to us? Food is satisfying. You're probably already thinking if I'll finish up where you can go eat. 
Maybe your marriage. It satisfies most of the time. But think through your own life. Think through your life. What are you placing your hope for satisfaction in? What are you trusting to fill the void in your life? Temporary things will satisfy for a moment, but not eternally satisfy. Only Jesus can do that. In Matthew chapter 6, we're instructed to not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth because it can be destroyed by moth and rust. But we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. Because where our treasure is, this is key. You may say, well, yeah, I like other things, and I may get satisfied some, but I don't like them more than Jesus. Well, the Scriptures teach us that where our treasure is, our heart is going to be there also. So Matthew is telling us, why treasure things that are so temporary when Jesus is eternal? Now, this is an important point that I would like to us to consider at this point. That basically every longing that you have, every longing that you have is a version of your longing for God. Every longing that you have is a version of your longing for God. And though it may be a distorted version of the longing, you are attempting to be satisfied with something that only he can satisfy, though it may be this perverted form of our longing, we're attempting to fill and be satisfied by drinking from broken cisterns. And we do that, it is still a longing for God because we were created and designed to know him, to desire him. So whether you know it or not, you are searching for God and you're searching of earthly things. Hear me this morning. Whatever sin offers, God offers more because God offers himself. Whatever sin offers, God offers more because he offers himself. He doesn't just offer things. He says, I'm going to give you me. Eternal satisfaction. So we establish that, that God is good, and yet we often find ourselves looking for satisfaction in things besides God. But I want us to consider this final thing. If you find yourself unsatisfied and discontent, never at peace and rest, I want you to consider these thoughts. We often think in moments. As we walk this earth, we often think about the moment that we are in. We think that the, the pleasures of temporary things are real. And the rest that comes from being you know, satisfied in these things are, are real. And that the rest in being satisfied in God is distant. So yeah, I one day want to be satisfied in knowing that I have eternal security in him. But that's there and there's some things I need right now for satisfaction. But the truth for us today is that it's really the other way around. The things we attempt to satisfy ourselves with now are a glimpse or a reflection, a shadow of the source of all joy and satisfaction, which is God. So you and I are called to look behind, beyond the temporary passing pleasures of this life and to look to eternity 
We have to feel the weight of the eternal satisfaction we are being called to. Paul tells us that there is a price for the satisfaction we seek in our sin. He says that the wage of that sin that you are tempting to satisfy yourself with is death. There is always a price to pay. Anybody watch Once Upon a Time? Raise your hand if you watch that. What, what is Rumpelstiltskin always say comes with magic? There's what? It's a price. It's a price. Everything comes with a price. And for you and I, we know this morning that we pay, you know, sometimes we pay this price on the side of heaven by heartache, broken relationships, addictions, shame. But we must see the seriousness of this subject matter this morning, that our temporary choices, if not corrected, will have eternal consequences. James 1.5 says that when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And I want to make a bold statement this morning. Because this is the part that it's not the easiest to walk through this text. But I'm afraid that for many of us, maybe some of you in this room, that many of you completely believe in the power of Jesus to save you. But you don't believe that Jesus can satisfy you. It's probably a reality across this room. Many of us believe in eternal security that comes from Jesus, and we want that. I want Jesus to be my Savior, but not my Lord. I think he is sufficient through his blood to save me, but he is not enough to satisfy me. So the lie behind this lack of belief is that God is not enough for me. He's not enough for me. For us, it is so often Jesus plus something. I want Jesus, but I want this other stuff that comes with Jesus. If you are a good God, then I'll take you, but I want the other stuff too, or you're not good. If you and I come to Jesus for more than Jesus, if we come to Jesus for more than Jesus, then there is still idolatry in our lives. That's the cold, hard truth there. If we come to Jesus because what we can get from Jesus, then we are worshiping an idol. We are still seeking satisfaction somewhere besides totally in him. And this is what I see as a danger for us that profess Christ as, as our Lord and Savior and all that we need. The danger to me is we proclaim the gospel as truth, but when we demonstrate the gospel, we are showing a lost world that Jesus is not enough to satisfy you. Because I profess that he is my Lord and Savior, but yet my life demonstrates that he is not enough for me. So the gospel message that we are delivering to the world is that Jesus is all we need, but I like all this stuff too, and it's important. So how are we to teach a world that there's nothing, abandon all things for the sake of following Jesus, but yet we don't do it. We don't abandon all things for the sake of following Jesus. We put satisfaction in, in other things besides the goodness of God. So I considered this question as I was 
thinking through this this week. If God is good like we profess and you and I do not have to look elsewhere for satisfaction, that he is the only thing that could ever satisfy us, shouldn't this foundational truth about God lead us into modeling and to proclaiming this truth among those who are lost? There should be a motivation in this. If we have a life rope and we truly say that we care for people, that Jesus is all, look, you can chase all these broken cisterns, but there is one well which springs forth living water, and that's the only thing that's going to ever satisfy you. Shouldn't that lead us to carry that good news, that life rope, to people who are floundering in life looking for satisfaction? So it makes me think, does our inactivity in engaging people who are searching and have not found Jesus with the message indicate a lack of passion for them? We really don't care. As long as I find it and I'm good, I'm good. Or possibly, does our lack of engaging the loss reveal the truth in the deepest corners of our heart where we believe that God truly can't satisfy us completely. I think we must consider those things today. I know in my heart I have to consider those things. And what do I give myself to all the time and why? If God is truly good and the source of all things good and acts out of his goodness and the only one that can satisfy, why do we look for satisfaction elsewhere? And so as I thought about this, I wanted to offer you a couple of real practical things as we finish How do we continue to preach this message to ourselves? How do we truly come to a place where we say, Jesus, you are enough to satisfy me. You are all I need. How do we come to a place where we believe that God is good so I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction? And I want to offer these last remarks. First of all, I believe the scriptures model for us that we must taste and see the goodness of God. For many of us, We have never drank from the well of living water and we have never tasted that God truly is good. I've heard a quote and I I can't remember who to attribute it to, but it was not me. But, you know, the quote that says, you know, uh, less sin become bitter. Less sin become bitter, God will not be good. So until we realize and we taste that God is so much better than the world, to where we taste and see that God is good, we walk away from sin, not by moral adapting, not by conformity to, to a system or to doing things a certain way because we just want to seek God, but out of our realization that he is good, we've tasted and we've seen that he is good, all this other stuff is bitter now compared to knowing him. So for us to just say, look, all right, you're right. I'm going to leave here today. I'm going to do things better. I'm going to stop doing this and stop doing that and stop seeking seeking pleasure here and I'm just going to denounce all those things so that God may be good to me. No, the goodness and sweetness of God is what leads us away from those things as we taste and see that the Lord is good. So I ask you this morning, are you seeking him? You may say, man, I just don't know. I just, he doesn't taste very good. You know, the, the goodness of God is nothing. I don't have much flavor to me. Well, I ask you, are you seeking him? Are you seeking him? Are you seeking his wisdom? Are you desiring to know him more? You know, if God is the standard of good and the source of all things good, always acts out of his goodness, 
then when we taste that, nothing else compares. In the depths of your heart, do you believe this? Or are you still drinking stagnant, stale water from broken cisterns? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Secondly, crush. We must crush the idols in our life that we seek satisfaction in. We must crush the idols in our life that we seek satisfaction in. When we see things in our life that are blatant distractions to us, that are keeping us from truly seeking our satisfaction in Christ, I ask, are you willing to deny those things? To deny yourself in the name of following Jesus? Now, please don't hear me teach that you are, you take this pragmatic, legalistic approach to seeing God. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you, you start following all these things and denouncing all these things and wham, God's sweet and tastes good to me. I'm not saying that. Because when you taste and see that God is good, his glory will overshadow the temporary. And rather than having to crush these idols, you will walk away from their smoldering remains because you see the one that is only worthy of our worship. I want you to think about your life. What determines if you're happy or sad or joyful or lacking joy? And what are you seeking satisfaction in? Is it social media? Is it television? Is it possessions? Is it money? What are you seeking satisfaction in? What idols need crushing in your life? You say, well, that's just kind of radical, isn't it? To say that I have to just, I mean, is there something wrong with watching TV? Absolutely not, unless it's an idol in your life and it's where you're seeking escape and release and satisfaction in. Man, there's what a radical way to think about things. But listen, following Jesus is radical. It's counterflow to culture. It's counterflow to the standard of society. It's different. We walk and trust and think differently. So what is it in your life that is an idol that you must crush? And last, we must truly treasure the Lord. A reminder of the story found in Matthew 13 beginning in verse 44, where we read on the kingdom of heaven being likened to a treasure that is hidden in a field. Man, who, man finds it, obviously sees its worth and its beauty, and what does he do? Does he say, I like that. I think I'm going to add that treasure to the rest of life. No. It says that he goes and he sells all that he has. He goes and sells all that he has. To buy the treasure? No. It says he buys the whole field because he doesn't want to miss the one thing that truly matters. For you, what is it that you must put aside for the sake of getting the treasure? Think about the rich young ruler. At the core of the story of the rich young ruler is not just specifically money. That was the struggle of the rich young ruler. So what is it in your life as you think about following after Christ that he is saying, go do this and you can follow me? And what is your response? Do you walk away from God, unable to abandon those things? Or do you risk it all for the sake of getting the only one who can satisfy. 
So God is good. So we do not have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the truth of this message to my heart. It is so easy to trade eternal satisfaction in you for worldly things that can only temporarily satisfy. God, I don't know what is going on in the people, in the hearts of our people here uh, in this room this morning. I don't know what the struggles are. I don't know what has, what, what they have put on the seat of the throne of their hearts. I don't know what they wake up with every day and bow down and worship. I don't know what addictions they have. I don't know what pride they have. I don't know what image they're trying to create. I don't know what it is that they're seeking satisfaction in. But God, this morning, may you allow our focus to not be on those things, but on truly tasting and seeing that you are a good God. You're the only one that satisfies because you wired us and made us with this vacuum inside of us that could only be filled by you. So God, as we, many times our lives are just an idle factory, God, can we, will you lead us to see what things in our life we must abandon and put less attention on so that we might know you more. God, not to say we don't enjoy things. We enjoy things so much more when they're not the source of our satisfaction. So God, may this truth of this word to us this morning just weigh on our hearts. God, may we truly taste and see that you are good. And through that understanding, we lack nothing. So God, as we respond now through worship and prayer and communion, God, may our hearts not leave this thought. As we walk from this place today, God, may we actively think about the idols we are placing in front of you. May we truly seek satisfaction in you alone. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together as we have a time.